my way of introduction, uh, as I told the kids, uh, Sharon and I had the privilege this last week of being with our kids at the beach. Uh, it was a great vacation. We really enjoyed it. Missed being with you those two Sundays, but uh, the chaos of 12 adults and eight boys under the age of seven at the beach is wonderful. We had a, had a great, great time and uh, just very, very thankful for that. Being around our grandsons uh, wasn't only a great joy, but it was also a reminder to Sharon and I of those necessary times of teaching, especially little boys, little girls too, but uh, teaching who's in charge and what that should look like. Um, you know, in, in most families, if you have more than one child, then there's a little bit of competition for who's in charge, right? And usually it's not brought up by saying, oh, brother, now remember, our loving father and mother have told us that there are certain things we should do or not do, and I just want to make sure I share with you and help you remember what mom and dad have said. Now, it's usually do this, don't do that, right? There's that competition, who's in charge, and it doesn't stop with childhood, does it? Uh, it doesn't stop with the teenage years either, and it doesn't stop with the adult years uh, deep inside of us, there is always that desire to be in charge, to be the one who can say how things should be. Uh, sometimes it becomes a struggle, doesn't it? At home or maybe at work, uh, maybe in relationships with people that you're close to, with your friends, sometimes even with God. In fact, I would suggest that probably all the struggles we have with who's in control ultimately come back to that. A struggle with letting God be totally in control, totally sovereign, totally with all authority to tell us what to uh, believe and what to do. Uh, you see, we work hard a lot of times to try to accomplish certain things. And when we don't get the fruit that we were expecting, we don't like that. We don't like whoever it was that got in the way of us carrying out our plans because we want to be in control. So far in Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew's been presenting Jesus to a mainly Jewish audience. Uh, he's been presenting him as the long-awaited Messiah and the king who is, in fact, in charge. Now, remember the melodic line. You've heard us mention that at various times. The theme of the whole gospel is that the kingdom of heaven has come down to earth in Jesus with all authority for all obedience unto all nations. Uh, this Jesus has been demonstrating that authority over and over again. He's declared that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's, he's taught and his teaching astounds. He's healed and his healing confounds. He's confronted false teaching. He's confronted wrong practice of the scribes and Pharisees. He's cast out demons with a word. He has healed lepers. He's made the lame to walk. He's given slight to the blind, and he's even raised the dead. This Jesus has declared that he has the authority to forgive sins. He's commanded the wind and the waves to be still. Over and over again, he has shown his power and his authority. And what we're beginning to see is that in response to these claims and demonstrations, there's going to be increasing opposition. There are those who are against him especially those of the religious leadership, the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, they're angry at times, and they'll show it. Sometimes Jesus responds to that by confronting them. Sometimes he walks away. 
But through it all, he keeps teaching and proclaiming and healing and demonstrating a compassionate heart that is absolutely devoted to doing his Father's will. He will not veer from that no matter what. The result, according to Jesus and the text that Jim preached from last week, is that the harvest is plentiful. But we come this morning to a text in which... uh, Jesus follows up on his instruction to the disciples to pray that the Lord would send out laborers. And now Jesus saying, I'm choosing some of you. You're going to help me. Here's what you're supposed to do. So if you would, please stand with me. We'll read our text. And it should surprise you as we read because we find that here Jesus is asking men. He's choosing men, ordinary, mere men to help him. In doing so, Jesus is very clearly telling us, I'm the one in charge. Uh, Let's pray and then I'll read the text. Father, please help us as we read your word. I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, that you would bring conviction where it's needed, challenge where it's needed, comfort where it's needed, uh, understanding where it's needed. Uh, Whatever it is, Father, you know our hearts. And so take your word now and apply it to us by your spirit. Uh, Help us that we may hear Jesus, uh, even as we hear his word. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Matthew chapter 10. And Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, No bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, Shake the dust off from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, The first section in our text is verses 1 through 4, and Um, I've entitled it in the outline there, Authority. This is all about authority. Jesus' claim to authority comes to us very clearly from the very beginning. By authority, uh, the Bible means power, ability, 
and the right to exercise that power and ability. So it, it's not just a claim to, a, to a, a, a right, it's the actual giving of that right to exercise that power and that authority. And Jesus claims that for himself. Uh, Matthew summarizes it very briefly here in saying that Jesus is the one who gives authority to his disciples. I want you to stop and consider with me what's taking place here. Uh, in these opening verses, Matthew introduces us to Jesus' disciples. We have that list of 12 names. A lot of times when you're reading the Bible and you read a list of names, your eyes kind of glaze over, but, but not here, right? Because these guys are like our heroes. These are the disciples. This, these are Jesus' team here. We, we tend to be more interested in them. We pay attention uh, but I'm not going to spend much time talking about them individually and specifically. I do want you to notice that they're just ordinary men. They're not religious leaders. They're not socially important people. Uh, some of them are even pretty despised. I mean, a tax collector in Jesus' day, uh, that's not a popular guy. Several different vocations, different financial status, probably passionate about different things, but each of them had heard Jesus' call and responded in faith and obedience to him. From several, or excuse me, uh, some commentators point out that uh, these men responded positively to several calls from Jesus. I mean, think about the first time they heard him. Uh, Jesus' call then is simply to believe, right? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The very thing he's going to tell them to proclaim as they go out, they had heard him say that. There was, and so there was the call to believe. There was a call to learn, uh, to become his disciples. And they had left their vacation vocations and followed Jesus. They now have this call from Jesus to go out as his representatives. So they, they're going to have a particular message to proclaim and particular things to do. And there's going to be a particular response that they're looking for as well. Later in their lives, they're going to have a call to become martyrs, to lay down their life uh, for the glory and praise of Jesus, except for one, right? These are ordinary men called by Jesus, given specific tasks. And it does seem significant, too, that Jesus would call 12. Perhaps that's a pointing back to uh, God's promises in the Old Testament and his people being divided into 12 tribes. Now, in this new kingdom that has come, the fulfillment of God's promises to his people throughout the ages, that Jesus would select 12. I want to ask you, does it surprise you that Jesus calls men to help him in his mission? Does it surprise you that Jesus would ask men to help in the harvest? Isn't this the, 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 the one who has all power, who it preaches so compellingly that people want to follow him? How is it that he would ask mere men to help him? Does it surprise you that Jesus gives authority to these men? Uh, notice Jesus doesn't just say, hey, I want you to go out as my representatives, do what I do, say what I say. Now, he has very specific instructions, and the power that he gives to them is pretty radical. Casting out demons, healing the sick. We're going to look at that more carefully in a few moments, but even raising the dead, these are mere men. And these are the instructions that Jesus gives. 
You know, at this point in the gospel, Matthew's original readers are no longer surprised by Jesus' power to heal. You shouldn't be either. Even if you've never read the gospel of Matthew before, maybe you're, you're here and this is the first time you've been going through Matthew. I doubt that. But if it was, there's been enough information already in these previous nine chapters that there shouldn't be any question in your mind as to who Jesus is, who he claims to be, and how he has backed it up with these uh, exercises of miraculous powers. And so it shouldn't surprise you that he is who he is, but that he would give this power to men? That's amazing. Think about it. We're familiar in our, some of us in our work, you have to delegate authority to someone. You, you give someone the right to do something. You try to give them the, the tools to accomplish it. Or maybe you're a coach or a teacher or even a pastor, and you have the opportunity to instruct others. You want to see change in their lives, and you can, you can pour it all out there, do everything you can to encourage and help. But what has to happen before there's ever change? Something has to happen in that person's heart. You, you can't grant that power or authority to anyone, even if you give them the best instruction. But this one can. Jesus can. He can give not only the instruction, but also the actual power to do it because he has all power. Paul describes Jesus in this way in Colossians. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I don't know that the disciples fully understood this at this moment, but the one who is speaking to them is the one who holds the entire universe together. He actually could give them the power to raise the dead. No one else could. I'll say more about the authority of Jesus and the instructions that he gave to the disciples in just a moment, but we need to pause here first and make sure we don't miss the big point that is throughout this passage. I believe it's Matthew's emphasis, and it's this. Jesus has all authority. There's no limits to the authority that Jesus has. He not only is able to exercise it himself, but he can grant it to others. Now, probably most of you would not have a problem with me saying Jesus has all authority. We need to bring it from this text and context into our own personal lives. And let me ask you this. Is there anywhere in your life, anywhere in your heart where you have a hard time with Jesus' authority? Is there anywhere in your life where you push back a little bit when Jesus declares how things are going to be for you? Maybe if suffering comes into your life, now, through whatever means it may come, who's ultimately behind it? Our Lord Jesus, right? What do you say, how do you respond to his authority when he requires you to do something uncomfortable? Uh, are you ever tempted to say no to Jesus? Now, you know, our initial thing we want to say is, well, no, I would never say no to Jesus. <laughs> but what about when Jesus says to show grace to somebody you don't want to show grace to? Or what about when Jesus says to extend mercy to someone you don't want to extend mercy to? What about when Jesus says, pray for your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, love your enemies? It's hard to say yes. But the one who tells you that is the one who has all authority. 
And so um, I want to encourage you to think this morning about how quickly you acknowledge in your everyday life the supreme authority of Jesus. That's the foundation for this whole text, is that he does have all authority. There's another thing that uh, uh, has really impressed my heart as I've studied this passage, and that is it strikes me that the, the authority that Jesus gives to the disciples, uh, he gives to all 12 of them. That's a bit shocking, isn't it? Uh, Matthew points out Judas, the one who will betray Jesus. He doesn't say anything here, but we know from the rest of the story that Peter is going to deny Jesus. And we know from the rest of the story that, as a matter of fact, all of the disciples at some point will leave him alone at the end of his life. And yet Jesus gave this power to all of them. You know, there are times that we just cannot fully understand why God does what he does. I think this is one of those times. But it's also a reminder, and this is what I would want to stress even more, a reminder of how being set aside to a particular office or calling by Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness in carrying it out. Let me make it more practical. Would you please pray for your pastors? Would you please pray for those that God has set apart as leaders in his church? And I, certainly for Jim and I and AJ and Troy as they're in training, but not just us, for all of God's pastors amongst all of God's churches because it's a hard thing to serve Jesus well. And if we are left depending on our own strength, on our own integrity, on our own willpower, we will fail. We, we can't do it. So please, please, as those who know and love Jesus, pray for us. Pray for pastors. Um, Jim mentioned in his prayer time the, the homegoing of several uh, men whom God has greatly used in his church. And uh, I'm thankful to God. Two of those three had an influence on me through writing and articles and sermons. I'm so thankful for their faithful service. But I've also heard within the last couple of weeks of a well-known pastor who has a, a pulpit with a lot of influence. He's done a lot of writing and there's been sin in his life uh, as far as how he's treated other people. And it's it's at a high enough level that he's been suspended from serving as a pastor. It's just, I don't get angry at that. It, it, it makes me more aware of my own frailty. Success in serving the Lord Jesus is not based on wisdom or intellect or eloquence. It's on a close walk with Jesus. So please pray for your pastors and pray for other pastors. Um, the next section, Jesus' commissioning of these men. And this is where it's the transition to they, them being called apostles. It's because they are the sent ones. Jesus has given them this authority and he's sent them out with a work to do. Can you imagine if you were there? What if you were one of the disciples? Jesus has told you the day before, all of you, that uh, the harvest is plentiful. You need to pray because there are few laborers. And then Jesus has spent the night praying, and now you gather together, and his first words are, all right, I'm going to choose 12 of you, and I'm going to send you in my name. It would be pretty astounding. What does Jesus say to them? First, he tells them where to go. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. 
rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember, it is Jesus' sovereign prerogative to tell these men where to go and who to proclaim the kingdom to. And it's a reminder to us of Jesus' faithfulness. He's reflecting the same desire of God the Father's heart as throughout the Old Testament, God kept promising, I'm going to send a deliverer for my people. I'm going to send someone who will rescue the sheep, who will bring them back to me. Jesus' priority at this time is the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's fulfilling the will of his father, and he's showing that the kingdom has indeed come, the kingdom that has been promised for such a long time. It sets the tone for later ministry. The apostle Paul in his ministry said, that the gospel of salvation, the gospel that he was not ashamed of was for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. There was a priority in their proclamation. And Jesus illustrates that for us here. But he doesn't just say where to go. He says what to say. The, disciples, the apostles don't have to figure that out. Jesus says, proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Reminds me of Jonah. Pretty short message and not especially persuasive. Remember, Jonah's message was, 40 days and Nineveh's destroyed and God brought about a great revival through that preaching. Jesus' instruction to the disciples, to the apostles, excuse me, is very brief. Eloquence is not required, but faithfulness to the message. Declare the kingdom is at hand and then carry out these miracles that will verify the truthfulness of your message. One commentator says of uh, these instructions about what to do, Heal the sick is a global command since it covers all miracles. Raise the dead is a stunning command because of the power implied. Cleanse lepers is a socially significant command since the disease made lepers social pariahs. Cast out demons is an extraordinary command because it addresses the unseen roots of human distress. All of that is true, but what is most amazing to me, again, is that Jesus does this with ordinary men. He gives them the power to do something that only he has been doing up until now. And it's fascinating that he uses the exact words. Here's what you're to do. It's the very exact thing that Jesus has been doing, down to the message as well as the actions. Now, it's true that in the Old Testament, there were prophets to whom God gave power at various times to perform miracles, to verify their words, that they were spokesmen for God. But that's a long, long, long time ago. These miracles that Jesus has been performing have pointed to his authority. They've identified him as God. And now he is saying to his apostles, you're going to go do the same things to verify that I am the one has sent you. And the way people respond is going to be how they are responding to me, not just to you. Now, before we look at that more carefully, um, take a look in verses 8 through 11, what Jesus says to take. Acquire no gold. Uh, the word acquire doesn't mean empty your pockets. It means don't go and try and gather more. So Jesus' instructions to the apostles are travel light. Just go. You don't have to make provision for yourself. You don't have to plan. You don't have to have that list of what to put in your backpack so that you don't go hungry. Just go. You are my representatives. You have my message. And I am going to take care of you while you are on mission. Trust me. I'll take care of your needs. I'll do that through worthy people and worthy houses. Well, what, do, what does Jesus mean by worthy? Uh, I think we can learn 
what he means by jumping ahead in the gospel. In chapter 22, Jesus tells a parable of a wedding feast, and he uses the same word worthy in that parable. That's the, the parable where there is a king who prepares a great wedding feast for his son and sends his servants out to invite people to come. And as they go and invite, everybody refuses. And so the king sends out a second group of servants and they have a, a, a more detailed explanation of what's happening. They're, they have a, a greater urgency to their message, but the people still refuse. And even worse than that, they uh, shamefully treat the servants, and then they kill them. So the king's very angry, and he responds and sends soldiers to destroy those people and burn their city. And he says to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Worthy means to acknowledge the authority and respond accordingly. And so Jesus is telling the apostles, as you go to the house, you're going to know it's a worthy house based on whether or not they will receive you and receive me through your message. That's how you'll tell. So before we move on, we ought to ask ourselves again, how do I respond to what Jesus says? Back in the Sermon on the Mount, it's responding directly to Jesus. Here in this passage, it's responding to his messengers whom he has sent. Jesus says, if you don't receive his messengers, you don't receive him. You need to think about this. What Jesus is declaring is that he has come to rescue the lost sheep. It's only through him that they're able to know and be reconciled to God. He's the fulfillment of God's promises and the most critical, important decision, choice, effort that anyone can make has to do with what do you do with Jesus? There's no question that's more critical, no question that is more important. That was true for Matthew's audience, and it's true for us today too, for our families, for our friends, for the people that we meet on the street, for our neighbors, even for our enemies. What's the most important thing for them is to answer that question, what will you do with Jesus? And if we don't speak up, then who will? What they do with Jesus has everything to do with where they will spend eternity. We'll look at that more closely in just a moment. Now, I know that you and I don't have the same calling as the apostles, but in three or four years when we get to the end of Matthew, um, we'll see that, that we all do have a responsibility. We do have a calling. And that calling is to proclaim what Jesus has proclaimed to us, to teach everything that he has taught, to command what he has commanded as we go with the people we meet. So let me plead with you, pray, <laughs> pray that you would understand the best way to communicate about Jesus to the people in your life, because they need to know. We need to speak up, and as we do speak up, it can be with the confidence that God knows his sheep. Jesus will rescue them, and he will help us as we go in his name to proclaim what he has declared. This brings us to the last section, verses 11 through 15. I'll try to cover this quickly. It's a hard saying. Uh, Jesus continues, um, I think verse 11 and 12 kind of make a transition between uh, the, the direct instructions Jesus has given regarding their actions and their words, but now it's what do you do depending on how people respond. Jesus gives two different kinds of houses, a worthy house or an unworthy house, a worthy 
host or an unworthy host, uh, people who will receive you and people who will not listen to your words. And Jesus says, if they won't receive you, if they won't listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. That's a biblical image of condemnation and judgment. Jesus is saying, if they don't listen to your message about me, you're going to face condemnation. And he makes it even more clear at the end because he says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Throughout the Old and New Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah are used as images of people in places that suffer the wrath of God because they've rejected God. It's over and over again throughout the scripture. I won't give you examples. You can look it up in the concordance if you'd like, and you might be surprised to see how many times it's mentioned. By using this example, Jesus is again identifying himself with the Father. It's a continuation of what God has revealed throughout his word. If you reject me, you're liable to condemnation. It's noteworthy that this message Jesus declares is not just for those who are outside the people of God, outside the church. Where are the apostles going? To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They're the ones who are faced with this decision. What will you do with Jesus? It was a relevant message to them then, and it is a relevant message to us now. What will people do with Jesus? What of those churches who claim to be churches, but say that there is a way to peace with God that doesn't include Jesus? This is for them. Their end will be worse than what is for Sodom and Gomorrah. What are those churches who still use the, the name of Jesus, but they proclaim a Jesus who denies the very words that we see Jesus speak in his word, who deny that Jesus is the one and only Savior? Jesus has hard words for them. The hard words come because there are only two ways that people can go. There are only two destinies for every single human being that has ever been born. It's either eternal peace and joy with God or eternal wrath to suffer. There's not a third choice. And so Jesus has what may sound to us like such a hard thing, but it's a good thing because Jesus offers life, eternal life, to those who believe in him. Uh, J.C. Ryle, a pastor who uh, served over 100 years ago, I believe, wrote of these verses, it's a most dangerous thing to neglect the offers of the gospel. This is a doctrine fearfully overlooked and one that deserves serious consideration. Men are sadly apt to forget that it does not require great open sins to be sinned in order to ruin a soul forever. They only have to go on hearing without believing, listening without repenting, going to church without going to Christ. And by and by, they will find themselves in hell. What will you do with Jesus? That's the question that should be on our heart for, for our whole life. For those that we meet, for those who would proclaim a way of salvation apart from Jesus, but it shouldn't make us angry. When you think about uh, this passage and what Jesus has said, we should feel great compassion for those who reject Jesus. Because if God doesn't have mercy, and if they don't repent, it's horrible beyond what we can imagine. 
So I want to encourage you, uh, brothers and sisters, please keep looking to Jesus. Uh, don't let your confidence in his authority and his kingdom uh, be shaken by whether or not people accept or reject him. Jesus' authority is not based on his popularity. It's there, whether there are few or many. So keep looking to Jesus. Please pray for those who are called to minister in his name. It's a high calling. And we have a great responsibility in proclaiming his word faithfully. But thirdly, recognize the plight of those who reject Jesus. Ask God for a compassionate heart, for the right words to say, to be able to share with them the glorious good news about Jesus, that, that God would work in their heart by his spirit that they might receive Jesus. Because if they don't, if they don't, Jesus says, um, something terrible is coming to them. Um, this has been a hard passage. It was hard to prepare, but, but there's good news here too. There's actually a reason for joy. We're going to sing in a few moments. My heart is filled with thankfulness. It's when I consider what Jesus has experienced for me because the whole reality of Jesus being able to hold this out as a possibility, as the, the surety of what will happen to those who deny him, who reject him, that they will be punished. The flip side of that is just as true. It's more gloriously true, isn't it? Jesus himself has borne the punishment that we deserve. He's, he's borne what is more terrible than what Sodom and Gomorrah will face. In all of his perfection, he took upon himself all of our sin. So we have reason to rejoice. If you love Jesus today, even if your love seems very frail and weak, and sometimes you think, I wonder if it's even there at all. It seems so small. If it's there... Oh, give thanks to Jesus for working in your heart to enable you to receive him, to believe him, to trust him, to love him, and keep looking to him. Don't look to the strength of your faith. Look to the strength of your Savior and rejoice in what he has done. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's what we're doing. We're remembering that Jesus bore all of that for us. He bore the wrath of God so that we would not have to, so we should have joy even as we think about such a serious subject, what will people do with Jesus? Uh, please pray with me. Father, we bow before you and ask that you would help us. We want to hold on to what you have proclaimed to, you in your, to us in your word. It's over and over again on every page that you are a God who saves sinners. That you have sent your son to rescue us. We thank you, Father, for the authority, the power, the compassion of Jesus. We thank you for how you made clear through his life that he was who he said he was. We thank you for the clarity of his message. And we thank you, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, we've been able to understand and, and that our hearts have been moved to love you and to receive the gift of salvation. We praise you for that. And we pray, dear Father, please have mercy. Have mercy on those around us who do not know and love Jesus. Work in their hearts that they might be able to know life and joy and peace and forgiveness and hope because of Jesus. And Father, help us to stand strong when there are those who reject your Son, our Savior. 
Please help our faith not to waver. Help us to remain steadfast, uh, to love and to serve and to look forward to seeing our Savior and King. We pray these things in his name. Amen.